uh, tonight. We uh, ended last week in, uh, with Jesus uh, in verse 37 of chapter 15, Mark, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. Uh, we know from the other Gospels that he cried out to the Father, commending his spirit unto the Father. And uh, of course, as, uh, as we have been seeing, there's a large group of people watching his crucifixion. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman guards and centurions that were there, common people, uh, blaspheming and doing all of these things. But uh, he wasn't alone in, in that site and so uh, uh, location. And so as he, he cries out to the Father and, uh, and then he breathes his last and we're told that uh, immediately upon his death that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a miracle of God the Father. I think it was one of the ways that he uh, manifested himself, most especially to uh, the Jewish religious leaders uh, at the time of his presence related to his son's crucifixion. I think in large part he communicated his presence at the scene of his son's death uh, to uh, those that were kind of the common people, the, the masses, and, and did that with the three hours of darkness from noon until three. And then now this miracle is directed uh, specifically to the Jewish religious uh, establishment. This miracle, like all of the miracles uh, uh, in the Bible, it's not just for those of you who remember way back the uh, Bullwinkle cartoons and watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, uh, Bullwinkle, and then a lion comes out and uh, memories like the corner of my mind. Um, but God didn't do just miracles for the sake of saying, look what I can do and you can't do. I do like two of the words that are used by God to describe uh, miracles in the New Testament. They're called signs and wonders, and a sign is something that directs us someplace, and a sign is intended to direct people uh, to God. A wonder is something that causes people to stop, a manifestation of the supernatural into the natural realm, and it makes people stop and wonder and think about God, think about something important, what happened right here beyond the ordinary uh, of life. And so this miracle of uh, the tearing the veil as God does it uh, in the temple and he tears it from uh, the top uh, to, to the bottom. It's interesting when you, uh, the Jewish, in the Jewish Mishnah, there is a description of this particular uh, veil that stood between, it, it, within the temple itself, there were two great rooms that made up the temple. It's a very simple building. There was the holy place where the priests could go in and offer, uh, you know, the, uh, the incense and, and the bread offering and the grain offering and, and, and so forth. And then there was this veil and then there was an inner compartment to the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And this curtain separated those two uh, areas. And the Mishnah tells us that this veil was uh, 60 feet tall in what was known as Herod's temple, 30 feet wide and as thick as the width of a man's hand. And uh, you can imagine as it was uh, torn, just the sound of it. If you, if you tear a single sheet of paper, not even cloth, you know, you hear that 
really must have been something as thick as your hand to have something like that torn. It would have gotten everybody's attention uh, in, in the temple area. The, the temple was, and the message behind this miracle wasn't just to get the attention of the, uh, the religious establishment, but to communicate to them something important as well as us. Uh, the entire grounds that God had established related to the tabernacle first and then ultimately with the temple was it was just a series of obstacles uh, from leading to the outer edge of the city or, or the edge of the temple in the city area, then making your way toward the temple. And the entire construction of the temple in the tabernacle area was to communicate to people how it is that our sin has separated us from God and from the holiness of God. Uh, the, the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God to the Jewish people. And so if you were a Gentile, you could come into the area of the temple and you could come into the court of the Gentiles. And then there would be a wall. And the sign on the wall declared that if you as a Gentile moved beyond that wall, it was punishable by death. They would kill you for moving beyond that. Uh, beyond that wall was the court of the women. And women, uh, Jewish women could then congregate there. But then they met a wall beyond which only Jewish men could go into. But even they were not free to go into the temple. There came a point where uh, they had to leave off as, uh, how close they could get to the temple. And then there was a portion of the courtyards and then the Holy of Holies that was reserved completely for the priests. But then there was this great curtain that represented an obstacle even to the priests in terms of access uh, to the very presence uh, of God represented in this veil that was between the holy place and between the most holy place. And, and so it, it was this series of obstacles and, uh, that, that were put there to communicate that, that distance, the obstacle that our sin is in varying degrees between us and, and God. And in terms of that Holy of Holies, only one man could go into that Holy of Holies and only on one day of the year, only the high priest could do it. And he would do it on the Day of Atonement. And he could only go in there into the Holy of Holies after having offered a sacrifice for his own sin. And so on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies, then he would come back out of the Holy of Holies, and for the rest of the 364 days of the year, the Holy of Holies sat empty. No one went in there. Not to clean, not to do, not to anything. It was just the Ark of the Covenant in that room representing the presence of God. And even though the priest, the high priest, could access it once a year, the other 364 days out of the year communicated how uh, even in his position he was separated by and large from access to God and relationship uh, with God. And that veil was there and, and suggested to them, suggested to everyone that, uh, that, that there was something, it was something that separated, it was something that concealed or it, or, or, or it, uh, it hid. And again, just to remind people of the holiness of God and how our sin has separated us uh, from that access to God. And then the moment, I mean the moment Jesus cries out to the Father. In that instant, the very first thing God the Father does is He tears that veil. 
The interesting thing is because Jesus was, uh, died in fulfillment of the Feast of Passover, at the very moment that God tore that veil, it, uh, the priests were already offering Passover lambs uh, for the sacrifice related to the Passover feast. It isn't unlikely that the high priest, Caiaphas, was in the very grounds, maybe in the very area of the temple with the other priests in the holy place, and then witnessed the tearing of that veil before him. And imagine as we went through the Old Testament looking at the veil and the hooks and the clasps and all that were involved in it. And here you have this great veil that's been torn in two and then now it lies wide open for anyone to see straight into the Holy of Holies. And this would have been absolutely mind-boggling to any Jew, much less the religious Jews, And what God was communicating at the moment of Jesus' death, that the old covenant was over, the old way of approaching God, the old way of having access to God, that was completely over now. Now there is a new way. There is a full access to God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not just for one priest, one day out of uh, the year, but now access to the Holy of Holies by anyone, Jew and Gentile, in all of the world, and to do so morning, noon, and night. And here we are, by and large, Gentile Christians. We've been born again into this. We can live with virtually no awe related to uh, the access that we have to God that the Old Testament saints would have only been able to dream of. And that's what the tearing of the veil represented. And, and I think the tearing of the veil was accomplished under the, right here as a part of the new covenant with the shed blood of Christ. So that even for us as Gentile Christians and with some familiarity of the Old Testament and of the holiness of God and that we didn't deserve us as Gentiles to even make our way to the court of the women and then to be in awe at the fact that any time, any day, any night, in the car, any place, we can access God in prayer and and engage in that relationship with Him. And this is the first thing that God communicated. And He communicated this access, this new access, this complete access to to the Jewish religious establishment uh, first. This is altogether a new covenant now that's in place and then puts it in His Word so that that we can uh, uh, recognize the impact of Jesus' shed blood on the intimacy of relationship that's been made available to us uh, as as a a result of it. And then the second thing that Mark puts before us here is, says in verse 39, so when the centurion uh, who stood opposite him, this is his job, the centurion, Roman centurion, he stood and he guarded over the, the person on the cross until they died. And when he, he sees Jesus die, he hears Jesus cry out to the Father. He saw that he cried out like this, he, and he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. So he hears this cry. This guy has watched scores of people die 
on the cross. This is what he did every day. Not one a day, as many as needed to die by crucifixion. And this guy watched people die for a living. That's what he did. And he never saw anyone die like Jesus died. And when Jesus cries out, I commend unto you, I commend my spirit to God the Father. And somehow this centurion recognizes as he is part of that one of those 600 that were in the praetorium that just hours before were mocking Jesus and putting a crown of thorn on his heads and pulling off the robe and giving him a scepter and then bowing before him in mock worship and and praise and spitting on him. And somehow he hears or knows related to what's happening at the base of the cross or even related to the accusations that this man claims to be the king of the Jews and claims to be the son of God. And when he watches this man die, before the resurrection, he recognizes, I've never seen anyone die like this. And he declares him to truly be the Son of God. We speculated last time over those 600 men as all that were part of the garrison to come and mock this King of the Jews. And how we would hope that some of them would have in the course of their life repented and, uh, and recognized Jesus as, as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords before everybody one day, uh, as, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And here he does that uh, in this particular place. And so at least one out of that 600 recognized Jesus for who he was and who he said he was. Interesting in the Bible, and it's fascinating, I think, as you read the Bible and and come across these centurions all through the New Testament, that every time a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, it's favorable. uh, favorable. Uh, You never have a bad centurion. Very, very uh, noble men. They they made the Roman Empire work. They they were the, the backbone, the core. They were what made the Roman legions function the way that they did. They were extraordinary men. And always in the Scriptures, uh, they're presented in a, in a, in a positive uh, way. And there were also, verse 40, women looking from, on from afar, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joses, and Salome, and who also followed him and ministered to him when he was up in the Galilee, and many other women uh, who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come now, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, one of the 70 that constituted the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, we know that uh, from John's gospel that he's joined by, uh, it's not just him, but it's Nicodemus joined him as well, the two of them, Nicodemus of John uh, chapter 3 fame, who came to Jesus by night, to whom Jesus declared the most famous uh, verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Preaching salvation to one of the most religious men in Judaism at the time. Everybody needs to be saved. And so uh, Nicodemus uh, joined him in, in this, and it was the day before the Sabbath, his prominent council member, 
And uh, he himself had been waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a sincere seeker after God. Most of the Jewish religious establishment was entirely corrupt or hypocritical or denying the commandments of God in order to keep their own uh, traditions. But there were some, a very small sum, uh, among the Jewish religious leaders that were sincere, they were godly. Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. Nicodemus was uh, an honest seeker uh, as well. And an indication that both of them uh, became believers in Jesus uh, as the Messiah. So he was looking for the coming of the kingdom of God, and that means he was looking for the coming uh, of Messiah. And coming and taking courage, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, this would take some courage. I mean, uh, here is Jesus. He's been crucified. Uh, it's been uh, an awful day. Uh, the Jewish religious establishment rose up against him. Uh, uh, the Roman Empire, as it was represented there in, uh, in Israel, rose up against him. And you can imagine now what is going to happen to me if I come in out of left field and, uh, and these that were able to arrange for the death of Jesus himself, if I come and show any sympathy toward him at all in, in asking for his body. It was, a it was taking his life into his own hands uh, to be able to do this. Tremendously brave and an act of love toward Jesus. He wants to take care of, uh, of Jesus' body. And so he went to Pilate, he asked for the body uh, of Jesus, and the reaction of Pilate was he, he marveled that Jesus uh, was already dead. It wasn't unusual for someone to hang upon, on the cross, depending on their own constitution, uh, to hang upon the cross for days before they would die. Uh, I'd be gone the first night, it would just uh, readily. I mean, even if they put me up in full strength uh, on, on the cross, uh, that cold come in. Imagine you're stripped of everything. He, a person's been scourged. They've been beaten. They've got nails through their hands and through their feet. And now, uh, bad enough in the daytime. Now you've got to go through the entire night in this condition. And how many days or nights could you survive? But it wasn't unusual for people to last longer than a day. And so Pilate is surprised that in this short period of time, six hours, that Jesus is... Uh, already dead. And he summoned the centurion and uh, asked him if he had been dead for some time to, uh, is he truly dead? He calls for the centurion. Again, these people knew bit, they, this was their job, to know who had died, who was still alive, who was dead now, and he asked for confirmation of it. And he was given confirmation of Jesus' death. And so he found out from, when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body then uh, to Joseph. And then Joseph uh, bought fine linen. Uh, and uh, he's going to make sure that uh, anything he can do uh, related to, to Jesus here, and uh, even in his death, he's going to do fine linen. He took Jesus down and he wrapped him in linen. It is fascinating from the moment of Jesus' death upon the cross, the only hands that would ever touch him afterwards were loving hands. Uh, never again would an enemy touch him. And uh, beginning with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they wrap him in the linen. They then laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. In other words, this tomb was not a natural cave. It had been carved out of a stone. Those of you who have been to Israel and you've seen 
uh, the garden tomb. This is an exact match of that, that, that garden tomb. Uh, it would have been uh, it, to hew out of, uh, of solid stone, to hew out your own uh, burial place meant that you had to be a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea was, and, uh, and so he basically gives Jesus his, and buries him in uh, what is uh, almost certainly his, his own uh, tomb, and then rolled a stone uh, against the door uh, of the tomb. It, the, it, it's fascinating that in, in that burial, certainly, uh, the uh, the Roman uh, uh, garrison and the Roman uh, government and, and centurions and whoever was involved in, in all of this, their intention would have been, and it was the end of anyone that was crucified, and certainly for a capital crime, uh, what they would do is they would simply take the body down uh, from the cross. They would take the body to uh, the, the valley of, of Gehenna, uh, uh, of Hinnom, and uh, in, in Jerusalem, and they would just throw it in. It was a garbage dump. It was always smoldering with burning garbage. They would throw the bodies there to where they would burn on their own or rot or be eaten away uh, by wild animals and by dogs. And that's what they, they would, it, it, intended to probably do with Jesus' body. And, then, and yet, uh, inconceivably, uh, if you put yourself in the place of looking at prophetically, at here he's going to die on the cross. He's going to die of crucifixion. He's going to die being accused uh, of a capital crime and, and so forth. And yet, when you go into Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that whatever happens in his crucifixion, whatever happens in how he's esteemed by uh, both Jew and by uh, by Gentile. Uh, he is uh, intended to be buried among the wicked, but he will be buried among the rich. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, and they made his grave, speaking of the Messiah, with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And all of it was exactly as had been uh, uh, prophesied. And only God can uh, understand these kind of details in terms uh, of the future. And then the stone was rolled across the tomb to secure it. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed uh, where he was laid. So they're walking, they're following at some kind of a distance, uh, wanting to keep track of, of what has happened uh, to Jesus' body, a beautiful kind of expression of their love. Chapter 16, and now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, and uh, you remember her, she had seven demons cast out of her. I've never been demon-possessed. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be demon-possessed, to be actually controlled and indwelt by a demon. I mean, what darkness, what hopelessness, what depression, what an awful, awful existence. And she had seven of these demons inside of her, and Jesus came and delivered her of, of all of those demons. Uh, as Jesus said, she, he who loves, uh, is forgiven much, loves much. And, and she was a thankful woman and, and loved, uh, loved Jesus. And so she comes now on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. Also Mary, the mother of James, uh, Salome, she came. And they, were, they brought spices that they might come uh, to anoint him. Jesus had been buried hastily and uh, essentially wrapped up, beautiful clothes wrapped up and put inside uh, of the tomb, 
but not in the way that you would want to bury someone that you loved with uh, the, the spices and, and these kind of things. And so they come early that, uh, as you see in verse 2, very early in the morning, the first day of the week. They come on the Sunday now uh, to further anoint His body. The resurrection is the last thing on their mind. They are not coming to that tomb on that Sunday morning uh, to come and discover a resurrected Jesus. They were coming to find a dead body and then to further anoint it. It's interesting, Jesus spoke continually concerning His death that would uh, occur in Jerusalem, spoke to the disciples all of the time, how it is that He would be spitefully treated by both Jew and Gentile. He would uh, uh, die. Uh, he would be buried and rise again on the third day. And here's the third day after His crucifixion and His burial, and uh, they're still expecting a, a, dead, a dead body. And so they come on that first day of the week, and they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Again, they're not coming. I mean, I can understand getting there very, very early in order to see a resurrected Christ, but their love is so great, they're coming there early so that at the first time there's any kind of light, they can anoint Him in a way that was on their heart to, to do. And they're having a discussion among themselves. And they said, who is going to roll uh, the st away the stone uh, from the door of the tomb for us? We've got all of these spices that we want to anoint his body with, but how are we going to access his body? And uh, all of the things that we worry about in life that we don't need to worry about, God's going to take uh, care of that for them. And and for us. And so this is their, their discussion. All right, we've got all of this, but you saw the size of that stone that was rolled across that opening. We have no hope of, of rolling that back ourselves. But when they looked up there as they'd come now to uh, the area of the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, already rolled away, and uh, for it was very large. They then entered into the tomb, and uh, so this is a tomb that's big enough not only to hold a body, but uh, to allow a number of women to step inside uh, of the tomb. Again, very much a match for that, uh, the tomb that is there in the, uh, called the Garden Tomb in, in uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, they, they uh, entered in the tomb, and they weren't alone. Uh, they saw a young man, an angel, clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, uh, there inside of the tomb. They're expecting Jesus' body. Here they see an angel, and they were alarmed. <laughs> Sometimes people, you know, you, it's interesting to study angels in the Bible. I mean, here, or especially in the book of Revelation, people say, well, if there's a God, let him send an angel right now into this room. Uh, you better have good health insurance because uh, you might die of a heart attack. The, there's angels that have one foot upon the earth and one foot upon the sun. And, uh, I mean, these magnificent creatures and creations of, of God. And here is this angel that is in there. They see him. They're absolutely freaked and uh, alarmed over it. They don't know who he is or what he is. It's a, it's a shock. And so he, knowing their condition, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, immediately they realize, okay, this is someone who is familiar with the situation and familiar with why we have come here. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Uh, he is risen. Uh, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so evidently, as he's, he stands, as, as sits as the angel on the right-hand side of this uh, area of the tomb, and as he stands in that area on the right side, those of you who are in Israel, there's a picture in your mind for this. You can go online and, and Google it as well. But there's room for him to stand, and then he says to behold where Jesus once lay and was now resurrected uh, to the left of where the women would have been. And... and uh, and Jesus uh, to, to witness then uh, the, the resurrection. See the place where they laid him. And then as he gives them the message now uh, related to his, uh, his resurrection, uh, he then further says, uh, but go tell the disciples and Peter. Well, excuse me, but where were the disciples and Peter? The women came on the Sunday morning, uh, risked their safety, risked their reputation in coming to further anoint the body of Jesus. But Jesus had said as, uh, continually to the disciples that he would die, he would be buried, and rise again on the third day. Why in the world, three days after his death, were they not camped out all night? outside of that tomb, waiting for the miracle of the resurrection. And yet not one of them was. They were all hidden away in the city of Jerusalem, trying to save their own skin. I only mention it not to make fun uh, of them in any way, but th these were the apostles. This is what God has to work with. And it gives me great hope in my own life and His use of me. What grace uh, he has toward us. And so they weren't there. The angel would have gladly told them face to face, but now he's got to deliver a message to them through the women. And go and tell his disciples, and then the angel makes specific mention uh, of uh, Peter. And this is that, that kind of uh, personal touch that the Lord does. They'd all failed, they'd all denied the Lord, they all ran. One moment in the whole three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry where they could have stood and it would have meant something and they, they, and they had boasted that they would all do that, you know. Uh, they all failed, but nobody failed like Peter. I mean, though they all deny you, I will never deny you and this. And, and the condemnation that Peter uh, must have just absolutely sunk down into. Uh, and, and we saw it earlier, the bitter tears that he cried after he denied Jesus the third time. And he has to feel like God will never use me again. The final story in my life will always be my failure, my three denials. I, I won't be as bad as Judas Iscariot or Pontius Pilate, but I, I'm going to be one of those names that is like, uh, never be like this guy. And yet God knowing what Peter's condition was here, a message was to go specifically, and Peter was to know that this was for Peter as well. And the message is going to communicate to Peter and the disciples, but Peter who's we're looking at is who we're looking at at this moment, that God has something more uh, for you uh, beyond your failure. 
And now you'll do what He's called you to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if there might be one or two of us here tonight where some great condemnation lays upon us over something of our past that we would give our right arm to have those 15 minutes or one hour or 24 hours back again to do it differently. But we can never get our past back. And to think that God has done with us as a result of that. The fact of the matter is, I remember Gail Irwin talking about uh, God's grace and talking about us in the context of His grace, and he used a term that is very attractive, and I, th and I think it caught all of our attention as he used it, and the fact that each of us are a trophy of His grace. We are a trophy of nothing else but His grace. And, and Peter here now, as God would use him, and use him mightily for the rest of his life, he'll end up being crucified upside down because he does not consider himself worthy to be crucified right side up in the same fashion as, as his Lord. And, and a trophy of God's grace and included in the Bible so that we would have hope in the times of even our great failure. And we think that God is, is done with us and our name will be mud and our legacy will forever be mud because of, of how we failed. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that He, that is Jesus, is going before you into Galilee and there you will meet Him as He has uh, said. And so this was the message that they were to take back into Jerusalem uh, proper and take it to the disciples. Evidently, they knew where they were uh, hiding uh, away uh, in that, uh, in that uh, um, upper room. And so they were sent to go and, and deliver the message. Now, the, the, the fact that Jesus met with them prior to Galilee, He's going to met, meet with the, the twelve hidden away in that upper room in Jerusalem uh, by the end of that Sunday. And so the fact that he says he's going to see them in Jerusalem doesn't preclude meeting him prior. It would, I mean, not in Jerusalem, but up in Galilee. Uh, it would be up in Galilee that God would meet, uh, Jesus would meet with them and give them the great commission, as we'll see a little bit later uh, in the chapter. And so uh, there, he, uh, there you will see him and, uh, as he ha has said to you. And so they went out quickly and they fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You ever ha do you have a part, is a part of your memory bank somewhere in your life where you're with a group of people that you love or you care about. It might be brothers or sisters or some close friends or something. And something happens that is so exciting, you can't believe that it happened. And it, it literally makes you tremble. And you just start to talk to one another uh, excitedly. Any, anybody have, you just got to have one of those in your lifetime to know uh, what I'm talking about here. Just a show of hands, I'm feeling kind of very alone up here at the moment. Okay. It's one of the greatest feelings in life. I mean, it's really, really exciting. You never expected that this could happen, that this is the, and then hear the talking excitedly about it and moving then on your way. And, and this is the, the excitement that they're, uh, that they're feeling and, and all of it. It's just beautiful how the Holy Spirit paints uh, all of that. And remember, they came to the tomb not expecting uh, to find a resurrection, but only expecting to find a death. I think it is very important to uh, note the fact that the news of the resurrection, uh, of Jesus' resurrection, was entrusted to women. 
before it was entrusted to men. And you might say, as a 2018 woman, well, what's the big deal about that? God knew what he was doing. Um, but as a little bit more of a story to it in terms of, of, uh, of 2,000 years ago. The fact of the matter, so often you'll have people will say, well, all of this in terms of uh, Jesus' life and the Bible and certainly concerning his death and his burial and his resurrection, it's all just a fable. It's just some men that got together and put uh, and fabricated uh, a story concerning all of it. But in the ancient world 2,000 years ago, I mean, if you were fabricating a story concerning the resurrection of Jesus in those days, you would never make women the first witnesses of anything, much less the most important event in human history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In those days, a woman's testimony was not even allowed in a court of law. They were not considered trustworthy. They were not considered credible. That's, that's honest. That's exactly how it was. And here, and so if you were going to make, if you were going to make up a resurrection story and present it to the world, if Mark was going to do that, you would absolutely have the disciples there instead of women there. The only reason that you would put in your account that women were there as the first witnesses of the resurrection and they were the first ones given a message to deliver to other people concerning the resurrection, the only way you would ever say that is if it was actually true of the resurrection and a true event. I mean, everything, uh, 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 everything about the account speaks to the truthfulness and the historical accuracy of the resurrection. I think it's also in this vein to think a little bit about, you know, in our modern kind of Western world, this idea that people think uh, so often they think of the Bible, they think of the God of the Bible uh, as in Christianity as somehow, uh, you know, disrespectful toward women. And nothing could be further from the truth, from this, uh, this event all the way uh, through the Scriptures. And I would contend, look anywhere you want in the world. Look at the plight or look at the condition of women under any other religious system in the world compared to the condition of women under Christianity. I would go further than religion. I would say look at the condition of women even under secularism or secular humanism. And how they have to in this new enlightenment of man's rules and man is everything and there is no God. Look at the culture that gets developed. Uh, women uh, are, are uh, terrified to be out on the streets. Uh, terrified for their own safety. Uh, terrified for how they're viewed and, and these kind of things. It, it, it is... It is, it is only where there is a, a Christian heritage and there is a Christian influence that women are treated in, in the way that God uh, desires women uh, to be treated. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is such a, um, a, a narrow, uh, superficial uh, uh, looking at the condition of women and what the Bible has to say about women and the actual condition of, of women in the world to say that somehow Christianity is an enemy of women simply because God gives the husband in a marriage the ultimate authority within that marriage. Uh, that is to uh, uh, strain at a gnat and to swallow a, a, a camel. And no comparison 
between uh, how women are treated in a place where Christianity is strong and where it, it, there has been a Christian heritage. Now, here in, in verse 9, we have a description of three of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Now, when He arose uh, on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary uh, Magdalene, out of whom He had cast the seven uh, demons. And she went and she told those who had been with Him, that is, the disciples, as they were mourning and weeping of His resurrection. And when they heard uh, that He was alive and that had even been seen by her, uh, they did not believe. Again, this was the place of women uh, within the culture. And after that, He appeared uh, in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the, the disciples. They made their way to the upper room, these two disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And, uh, uh, and they go and tell the disciples, we, He's risen. We talked with Him. We walked with Him from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, uh, but they wouldn't uh, believe even there. And then finally later, uh, He appeared uh, on the evening of, uh, of that Sunday of His resurrection to the eleven as they sat in a table. And uh, when He gets there to talk with them, He rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen Him uh, after He had uh, risen. And then, uh, uh, as we come into verse 15, Jesus gives the disciples uh, the great uh, commission, and uh, He said to them, this is uh, uh, sometime uh, after the, the Sunday of, of His resurrection, and He said to them, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And, uh, and the idea is, is the gospel is God's invitation of salvation, forgiveness of sins in relationship. And the idea is that uh, every single one of us who have heard that invitation from God and then received and accepted that invitation, we now have an obligation to let other people know that God extends the same invitation uh, to them. And that's, that's an obligation that we have. Someone was faithful uh, to verse uh, 15 in our lives, and now we have a responsibility to be faithful to it in sharing the gospel with other people. When he talks about here to these very Jewish uh, believers who were still trying to get their minds around the fact that Jesus loves the whole world and not, uh, and not uh, that God loves the whole world and not just the Jews. When he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, again, that would have been mind-boggling for them. Uh, they would have expected, now go and preach this to every single uh, Jew. But when he says to every creature, Jesus is communicating to them that this gospel, this invitation is to the entire world, to Jew and Gentile alike, and he loves the whole world uh, equally. That word go, which is the first word that, that uh, Mark uh, uh, uses here in, in his, his account here as he, as he speaks of, uh, 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 has his record of this giving of, uh, of the Great uh, Commission. That word that he uses as a go there is uh, actually uh, not a 
uh, a command, but it's a, a present uh, participle in terms of, of the language of it. And it, it literally is, he's, Jesus is literally saying, going into all of the world and preach the gospel to every uh, creature. And the idea is that as you're going into all of the world, now take this gospel uh, with you. Uh, I think the uh, ISV has, is a translation that gets it perfectly. It puts it, and then he said to them, as you go into all of the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And the reason I make mention of this is it speaks very, very strongly to probably the most impactful uh, way of fulfilling the Great Commission in the world today, and that is through uh, personal evangelism and to do that through lifestyle evangelism. Crusades are great. Straight, street witnessing is great. Door-to-door -door witnessing is great. All of those things are great. But in the, 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 the most complete way for a person to fulfill, a Christian anywhere in the world to fulfill the Great Commission is to simply share the gospel with people as we're going where we go in life. You don't have to go to the other side of the world to fulfill the Great Commission. We just need to let people know about God's offer of salvation in the place that He has put us. And, that, and most often, it's, it is the most effective when it comes from us. God will add His witness and His power and His glory to the gospel when it's shared anywhere. But so often, we have the relationship with the people that are a part of our coming and going in life. And, and so they will listen to us as they've seen our lives or, or, or respect us, or at least listen to us to share, uh, share the gospel. And this great uh, uh, commending of uh, don't, wait, don't wait to fulfill the great, uh, great Commission until you get a call to Argentina or Uganda or the Ukraine or someplace like that. We all have a place in it in our coming and going in life. And then we, everybody has a right to hear the gospel, and our responsibility is to share that gospel uh, with people. But we have no control over whether they accept that or they reject it. When you became a Christian, you became a Christian out of your own free will to choose uh, to become a Christian and to receive that salvation. Other people have the same freedom to do so. And so we share it, and then Jesus said, to, uh, said that he who believes, that is, trusts in, uh, in that gospel, trusts in Jesus for salvation and is baptized, they will be saved. But he who does not believe, uh, uh, does not believe will be condemned. In other words, here are the eternal stakes that are uh, in play with what a person does with this invitation to, uh, to salvation. And these signs will follow those who believe uh, for Christians. Uh, in my name, and that's a, 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 an important qualifier, in my name, in other words, as we're doing what God has called us uh, to do, representing Him and, and consistent with His nature, they will cast out demons, they will speak with other tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will 
uh, recover. Now, some of you have probably wondered, you've been waiting for me to come to this passage for years and years and wondering why um, we don't have snakes and poison is a part of our services, uh, morning or evening, and uh, why uh, in our services we don't uh, kind of hand out the snakes on this side of the service and then have this side uh, drink poison as an evidence of the fact that we are believers and we are uh, Christians. Uh, this this uh, promise concerning the, the supernatural of, uh, of, of the, the Christian life, it's given, it, it is given to those, to us, as we are working in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, as we're involved in taking that gospel all around the world, that we can be confident that if we'll deliver the gospel, that God will add His witness to that gospel in whatever form He needs to in order for people to understand that this is the truth of God and it comes by God's authority. That may be a very strong witness in somebody's heart when you preach the gospel to them, and then there's just like this sense that that, wow, that is the truth, and I mean, I've got a, a witness to the fact that this is the truth that could only come from God. Or it could be one of these other, other miracles. But the churches that uh, sometimes in a, uh, that will do the, and every, every year or so, there's an, you'll see an article online where somebody dies in the church service, where the pastor or the elders pull out the rattlesnakes and they're going to handle them now as a part of the service to prove that uh, they're Christians because uh, they can be bitten by a snake and, uh, and they don't die. And some even, there are even some that have, have drunk poison and others to, to accomplish the very uh, same thing. Uh, you might wonder why it's a very small uh, segment of the body of Christ. Uh, it, it's because um, they die, uh, basically. You, you, a lot of them die related to that. Most people don't. Most people understand the context in which this is given, and we're not to tempt God in this kind of a way. But it is, this isn't given, so we can do kind of a, a, you know, a snake and poison show at the services and, and then... Uh, say, look at what amazing Christians we are, and we really are, are Christians. The context is, is the Great Commission. And you, you talk to any missionaries anywhere in the world, and they will tell you as they go into these foreign cultures, especially cultures that are pre-Christian, there, there's no Christian heritage there at all, that God will uh, very often confirm His message through, uh, through the supernatural. Of course, the great uh, illustration of all of this related to snakes is when Paul was on his journey to Rome, shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He gathers the sticks for the great fire so they wouldn't all freeze to death there on the beach. And there is an asp or a viper that is caught uh, in the sticks. They're cold-blooded. They're frozen solid and look like a stick almost. Throws him toward the fire, and the, ass, uh, the, the viper uh, realizes it doesn't want anything to do with the fire, jumps at whatever it can, and latches onto Paul's hand. And, uh, all, uh, and everyone, all of the natives are looking for Paul to collapse. They understood the snake. It was a native snake to them. Everybody who gets bitten by that snake dies. So they're waiting for him to die. Paul just brushes it off uh, in, into the fire. You animal lovers, you'll forgive him for that. Uh, he understood that we have dominion over these things, especially after they've bitten you. But they, they waited for him to die, and then he didn't die, and it opened up a great uh, avenue and opportunity 
opportunity related to the gospel and Paul's uh, life there. So again, here is the context of it. Here is uh, the the, uh, supernatural that we can expect. And even if we don't see these miracles, to just know as we share the gospel that we've done our part. And it isn't like, okay, I've done my part, now to hell with you. But to know that we did our part uh, in this and to know that what God did in our lives, he, he will do in their lives too. He will give that the life that it needs uh, in o- order to, to uh, bear witness to it, to where they will recognize uh, the truth of it. Whether we see it as a miracle or whether we never see what the Holy Spirit does in their heart, all of that is happening. And so then, after the Lord had uh, spoken to them, uh, he was received up uh, into uh, heaven. And uh, there are other gospels that kind of, this is his ascension into heaven. Other gospels kind of fill in a little bit. Mark's account is, his entire gospel is an abbreviated account of a lot of different things. This happened uh, 40, uh, 40 days uh, after, uh, after his uh, his, uh, uh, his resurrection, and it occurred not up in the Galilee, but it occurred uh, from uh, the Mount of Olives. And so he was received up into heaven. One of the great miracles of Jesus' ministry was his ascension into heaven, came. We're, here we are at Christmas time. We're celebrating his incarnation, his leaving heaven to come into this earth. And here in his ascension, he leaves the earth to return to His, his glory uh, within, uh, within heaven. And, as he come, and, and the fact that He ascended back into heaven was a, a witness uh, of, uh, of heaven and of God the Father of the truthfulness uh, of everything that He taught and everything that He did in, in His incarnation and in His public ministry. And then notice that ascending into heaven, uh, upon getting there, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so he sits uh, today um, ever making intercession for each and every one of us and waiting for uh, the moment when uh, God the Father tells him to return and to, to receive us up in the rapture into the glory of heaven. And there he sits and there he waits for that word. You remember when he was being, just a chapter or two earlier, when he was being uh, ridiculed by the Jewish religious leaders on the trial, the the religious trial of the morning of his crucifixion. And he spoke uh, to them that one day they'll see him uh, seated at the right hand of God. And uh, speaking of his position in heaven, and what further need do we need this blasphemy? This is grounds for uh, killing him and all. And yet, all he did was tell them the truth. That was his portion, and that is his place. And then they went out, and they preached the gospel everywhere. This is the book of Acts. is all about that. And the Lord working with them. I mean, the only reason the gospel has survived through 2,000 years of history and changed lives and all of this, the reason we're saved, is that the Lord goes along with that gospel, as we've been talking about. And he went with them, strengthening them and leading them, 
And then again, as we've already said, uh, confirming the Word, the Word of the Gospel through accompanying signs, adding the witness of His Holy Spirit and the miraculous, however, is necessary uh, to that Gospel uh, in order for people to recognize uh, that it was, was true. Confirming the Word through accompanying signs. The, uh, the order is significant. Uh, first the Word, and then God confirms the Word. And, and that was His order here. They preached the Word, and then it was up to God to confirm it with the accompanying signs and wonders. And so we come to the end of, of Mark's Gospel, a beautiful Gospel. And Mark, uh, again, just kind of boom, 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 these snapshots one right after the other, and, uh, but looks at it his, his own way. We'll look next uh, week, or not next week on Sunday night is our night of worship for Christmas. Going to be a great night uh, that, uh, that evening. And then the following Sunday night, we'll look to begin, uh, go back into the Old Testament and, and begin the book of Ezekiel. So let's stand together now and, uh, and, and we'll pray. Before we...